Attention, looking for semi-drivers nationwide. GTS Transportation of Burr Ridge, Illinois, is looking to hire a partner with experienced CDL holders in every state. If you are going to drive, why not drive for the best? Whether you are driving solo, as a team, or as an owner-operator, GTS is looking to add you to their rapidly growing company. Become part of one of the most respected, driver-friendly, and successful transportation companies in America, where drivers are treated as royalty. Contact us at gtscarrier.com. Again, gtscarrier.com. Or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. We would love to help you, which in turn helps everyone. GTS is an equal opportunity employer. Wounded but not broken with host Patrick Scroggin. As a U.S. Army attack helicopter pilot deployed in Iraq, Patrick faced a devastating crash, which resulted in him dying, losing a leg, and a slew of broken bones. Patrick's story of rehabilitation has helped others to overcome their own obstacles. Each week, Patrick recounts stories of inspiration and interviews guests who have overcome remarkable obstacles. This is Wounded But Not Broken with your host, Patrick Scroggin. Hello, everyone. I'd like to welcome to Wounded But Not Broken. I'm Chief Warrant Officer 2, retired Patrick Scroggin. It's such an honor for me and a privilege hosting this show. Thank you for tuning in and all the support. Wounded But Not Broken will cover a wide variety of topics. My goal is these topics will touch and inspire and captivate you. We all have struggles throughout our life. My hope is that you can relate in one way or another. Tonight, I'd like to share my story of pain, struggle, frustration, failure, and success to help you understand who I am. Growing up in uh, central Missouri, uh, I was just a typical ornery young man. Uh, I was in trouble pretty much every day. I grew up in a big family, uh, five sisters and three brothers. Um, you know, it was a uh, very challenging to uh, grow up being the youngest of nine, uh, everything turned into a competition. So my drive, my determination, my will to succeed came at a very, very young age. And at, at a very young age, my, f my father owned a, a flying service. And so my love for flying was naturally born into me. Uh, though my love for hunting in the outdoors uh, was, was there since before I can remember. And so um, growing up and learning to fly at a very, very young age, uh, I remember, uh, since, since I can remember, I was sitting in an airplane with my father uh, flying, and it just, it just really came natural. So aviation was, was such a great uh, pedestal for me to, to, and a goal to strive for because I wanted to become a pilot. Um, I wasn't a stellar student by any means, but I did have a lot of drive, and I had a no-quit attitude from, from the time I was a kid. Uh, you know, w one time I think back to a story, I was a pole vaulter in, in, uh, in high school, and um, I was practicing for, I think, the Hershey's meet in Missouri, and I was trying to clear a certain height, and it was like 10 o'clock at night, and my mother had came to track to try to get me and I wouldn't go because like, I hadn't cleared the, the height that I wanted to go. So like three in the morning, I think finally before I cleared it, but she, she was shining her light 
uh, on the pit so I could so I could do it <laughs> um, and uh, my uncle what was in the military he was a colonel at the time and I remember him coming home and, and the way he carried himself the professionalism that he had the confidence you know and, and so that that's what really instilled the military mind in me I really you know it was I was just in awe you know with seeing the medals on his chest you know you're a kid and and uh, you know he was in the Vietnam War and he did a lot of stuff and so my uncle Tom was the was the big uh, push to for me to go into the military um, going through high school typical high school teenager I was just very uh, I got in some trouble. Uh, I graduated high school. I got a DUI, um, and so I like to tell this story because there's a, things now or things then that if you get a DWI or DUI, there's a lot of things that people say you can't do, and and this is just a, a testament to if you have the will and the drive to do something, and there's nothing that will stand in your way. I mean, you can you can figure it out, and so uh, I was you know, a teenager. And so my friend and I were driving a truck and I fell asleep and ran off in the ditch. Uh, he got really hurt. I ended up putting him on my shoulder and carrying him for uh, over two miles. Um, his head was bleeding. It was in Missouri in the wintertime, three below, I think, with snow. And I was, I was in shorts. I always wear shorts, so it was cold. Um, and so I remember running with him and I get to a house, knock on the door, and nobody's going to answer the door at 3:30 in the morning, of course. So there was a there was a car or a truck in the in the um, driveway that had the keys in it, and so I just I made the command decision, as we call it in the military, to take the truck to save his life. Uh, the hospital was too far away, so the only place I could take him was to the sheriff's station. So knowing I'm turning myself in, um, I ended up. Uh, pulling into the sheriff's station and and uh, got him the help that he needed and ultimately I ended up getting a DUI. I really couldn't I couldn't deny it. Um, I'd been drinking. I wasn't gonna lie. And so you know that was uh, just my story of when I'm young, you know, just making a dumb decision. Hmm. But uh, you know after that, I, I had decided I wanted to join the National Guard. So um, I had to jump through some hoops to get through because of the DUI. But I joined the National Guard and. Uh, as an artilleryman. And so when I went to basic training, my brother actually joined with me, my older brother. He's four years old, or four years older than me, I'm sorry. And uh, we get to basic training, and both of us are, you know, stellar athletes. We were the best at everything. And uh, we started this little business of uh, haircutting because nobody had time to walk down and get a haircut. So my brother and I pulled our money together and we bought clippers. And so we cut everybody's hair. And I remember the next morning in formation, the uh, drill sergeants came out and they said, <laughs> we butchered some heads up, it was bad. But drill sergeants were yelling and they said, uh, you know, who cut your hair? And they were like, Private Scroggin. And he looks around and he's like, which one? <laughs> and he pointed at my brother. And so my brother got in big trouble. And I kind of got out of that for a little bit, but that was just kind of a funny story of me starting out in the military, um, you know my resourcefulness and, and uh, I, I just, I was never content. And so when I got home, I started the National Guard drills like every National Guard guy does, I guess, so on the weekends. But I'd go in and it was just boring. We'd sit around and I was thinking, damn, you know, I, I want something better than this. Um, so uh, just, I, I spent my time in the Guard, did the two weeks. The two weeks was fun because you get to go out and play soldier and, and uh, you know, I love the outdoors, I love camping. And so it was really uh, just natural for me to 
to love the military, um, but I just didn't like that that sitting around and not doing anything, which I don't think really anybody does. But um, so, you know, I, I served out my time there, and uh, it was time for me to figure out what I was going to do with my life. Um, I could have, you know, obviously could have went to college, and I got offered a job in the family business in Texas. Uh, so I moved to Texas and started flying crop dusters. Um, you know, as a, as a young 18-year-old kid flying a three-quarters of a million-dollar airplane cam carrying chemicals, and, you know, it's a lot of responsibility. So, I mean, I had to grow up really quick, um, you know, with the amount of pressure that you have. I mean, that's a very dangerous job. You know, you're flying three feet off the ground, 160 mile an hour, under, underneath highline wires. And, um, but, you know, I guess my, my bad luck kind of started to come. In that airplane I was flying in my first year, I had six engine failures. Um, I remember the first one. Uh, the first one was the worst. I was flying, uh, spraying, a, spraying a field, and you know, the engine just quit, and I was in the top of a turn, and, and I couldn't see anything. All the oil came back on the windshield, and I just remember seeing, like, a little red road. So I lined up on it, and I flew through the only two trees in West Texas, right between them, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just landed the airplane, and I, I jumped out, I think, before it even stopped. And, um, uh, you know, I remember just thinking, you know, holy shit, you know, I, I could have died. And so that was my first, very first, like, come to Jesus moment to where I'm not invincible and, you know, it can happen to me. Um, much more to follow on that come to Jesus moment. But uh, so, you know, I, we, we fixed that airplane and that airplane ended up quitting me um, five more times. The last time it quit me, I landed it on the uh, Seminole Highway between Hobbs, New Mexico and Seminole, Texas. And, uh, you know, that's where I left it. But uh, so I, I kind of jumped in another airplane for a guy to fly and September 11th it happened. Um, I was spraying a uh, 482 acre field in West Texas. And uh, I was, I came in to get a load. Nobody was there to load me. And you know, in that business, time is money. And so if you're if you're not in the air and you're not spraying, you're not making money. And I love to make money, so I was pretty pissed off. And I ran inside. I'm like, you know, what the heck's going on? I had no idea what was going on. The they showed me on the TV that one of the World Trade Centers was on fire. And at that time, we didn't know it was a. Uh, it was terrorist attack. I mean, we just thought it was an accident. So me being me, I'm like, well, let's get the airplane loaded. You know, I need to get back. So I got the airplane loaded back up and uh, went out spraying this same field. It, it, uh, and I just remember getting a call on the radio and said another one hit and it, it we're being attacked. And I, sitting in that cockpit of that airplane, I just felt this overwhelming sense of like just I was, it just kind of like scared me, but, you know, because growing up as an American, I mean, we grew up in a superpower, you know, we don't think anybody can hit us on our homeland, you know, and so it was, it was had such an impact on me that, uh, and then when, not only that, but the F-16 that escorted me back to the, to the airport, um, I was going to land in the field, but, you know, he told me I could go back to the airport, so I went back and landed, and I got out, and, and then I got caught up on the times of what was going on, and I think at that point, um, is when uh, the you know, Pennsylvania airplane had went down. And that was, you know, Americans taking over and, and trying to uh, do what they could to make sure that that airplane didn't, didn't hit another key target. 
which, you know, then people are heroes in my opinion. But um, so, you know, I had a big decision to make as a young kid. I was doing what I loved. You know, I had a great job, great career going. Um, so do I quit that and go serve my country to, for a bigger cause, you know, bigger than myself? And, uh, you know, honestly, the choice was really easy for me. I mean, I knew I knew I had to go as my calling. So I went to the recruiter office, and everybody thinks that I would go join the military to be a pilot. That wasn't the case. I'd already been flying so much, and after six engine failures, I, I wanted something, I guess, more dangerous in a different way, I guess. I don't know. So I joined as an a airborne infantryman with a Ranger contract. Um, so uh, April 1st of 2002, I went off to basic training and um, became it was a choice for me to go to that basic training. I didn't have to since I already went to another basic training. So I decided that I wanted to go to that one. And it was fun for me. I had so much fun. It was infantry, so it was a little different than artillery. And I, uh, you know, I, I gave it everything I had. So the, dr the drill sergeants expected a lot out of me because I was always in really, really good physical shape. I, could, I did everything, you know, to the best of my ability. And I had a great attitude. And uh, so that, that was really fun. Go to airborne school. Um, airborne school was a blast. It was kind of a big vacation and you're drunk every weekend because you can leave <laughs> and you've been cooped up for 14 months. Um, so, you know, a lot of hangovers there and uh, you know, you run every day, but the running, I think you run like eight minute miles or something. So it's not really that difficult. Getting out of airborne school, I go to RIP and that was a whole different uh, wake up call. When I got to RIP, it was, you've never seen people run like the Rangers can run. It is insane. And so I thought I was in shape. But uh, throughout RIP, uh, I get pretty much through RIP, about three, three quarters of the way through it, about two and a half weeks. And uh, my daughter was born, and she was born with a lot of complications. And so I had to pull myself out, and I went home to, uh, to be with her. And um, I just, I had realized that... Um, you know, there was more than just meeting that goal. I, I had to think about my family. And so t we're going to pause here for a uh, moments from our sponsors. You're listening to Wounded But Not Broken with host Patrick Scroggin. We will be right back after a word from our sponsors. Attention, looking for semi-drivers nationwide. GTS Transportation of Burr Ridge, Illinois is looking to hire a partner with experienced CDL holders in every state. If you're going to drive, why not drive for the best? Whether you are driving solo, as a team, or as an owner-operator, GTS is looking to add you to their rapidly growing company. Become part of one of the most respected, driver-friendly, and successful transportation companies in America, where drivers are treated as royalty. Contact us at gtscarrier.com. Again, gtscarrier.com. Or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847 847- 754-4667. We would love to help you, which in turn helps everyone. GTS is an equal opportunity employer. 
Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Radio broadcast for over 15 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution have been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. You're listening to Wounded But Not Broken with host Patrick Scroggin. All right, everybody, welcome back to Wounded But Not Broken. Um, I'm joined here with Lance Hack, uh, the owner of the studio that we're filming this in tonight. Hey, Patrick, thanks for, thanks for uh, the inaugural show tonight. It's exciting. We've, uh, I think tonight it would be a great night for everybody to kind of get to know you and your story and we got some great shows coming up. Patrick's got some awesome stuff in the next several, several weeks. I hope everybody kind of checks out. And So tonight was, uh, you know, the inaugural show and I'm going to be your wingman just for tonight just because uh, this is awesome. I uh, appreciate it's going to be an that. awesome show and, and uh, we're going to try to get as many, well, millions across the America to listen to uh, the Veterans Radio broadcast. So we'll have several shows. Patrick's show is going to be on Monday nights so you guys can check it out and so it's a great night for everybody to get to know Pat. So he's an awesome guy. Check it out, man. Tell him your story, too, man. Let's not forget some of this good stuff. You know? Yeah. All right. So I left off with um, uh, leaving Rip uh, because of my daughter. My daughter was, was uh, really sick. So I ended up going home, and I decided that I needed to, to make a better decision for my family. I knew I was going to Iraq. Uh, I wanted How to How old were you at this point? I was 23. 23. So, you know, I had to set my dream, because my dream was to go to ranger school, um, be a Green Beret, and, and so on and so forth. And that wasn't unattainable. I knew that. Was your, was your family in the military? I mean, your background? Yeah, just, just my uncle. My uncle was a, uh, oh, okay. a Fulberg colonel. He retired as a Fulberg colonel. And then uh, we had some cousins on my, my mm. dad and uncle's side. Uh, actually, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, pretty good military history. Yeah. Uh, but out of the siblings, um, I was the only one. Well, my brother went to basic with me, but National Guard was kind of the end for him. Um, so I, I made the decision that I wanted my family to be uh, as close to my family as I could, you know, knowing that I'm going to Iraq and knowing that it's, uh, you know, I'm going into the, into the lion's den, right? So I, I decided to pick the 101st in Fort Campbell, being from Missouri. Uh, all my family's in Missouri. So I go to Fort Campbell and um, uh, got in second 327, the scout platoon. Um, and you know it, it was a it was a it was kind of a culture shock for me you know because everybody's mm -hmm. spooling up for war and I right. come in as this hot-headed you know uh, <laughs> you know I was really in shape I mean I was cocky and, you know I always say there's a fine line between cocky and arrogance you know and I always had a foot on each side um, I think you have to in them kind of jobs so uh, you know we we deployed to Iraq uh, February of 2003. Um, I was at the same, actually I was on the, uh, the hunt uh, for the Akbar character that threw the grenades, mm -hmm. and that was kind of our first taste. And I remember uh, that night, that British Mirage jet was flying over, that thing blew up right over my head. I mean, we thought it was an airburst scud, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Saddam was throwing chemical weapons at us or something. But uh, that, that night was a big wake-up call for me. Um, you know, that's when you know it's real, when you're looking at, at guys you know, that aren't breathing anymore and, and you're seeing all the carnage of, of what can happen in combat. 
um, it was it was a it was a big wake up call for all of us. Mm-hmm. And so I think two days later we ended up going into Iraq. So this is my first deployment as an infantry guy. Um, went uh, started at the border. Went to Anajef to uh, um, Ahala, and uh, in Ahala we we picked up the 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 World Food Program that they had set up. And that, I guess Uday was in charge of that or whatever. So that was like our base of operations. And to this point, we'd been uh, probably two or three months without a shower. And so I was always known as kind of the resourceful guy. So I always kind of took it into my own hands. We went out and acquired. So your buddies were following you around wanting to know what to do? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I just, I don't know, I guess I just didn't have any fear, you know. So uh, a few of us went out and we acquired a couple of fire trucks. And so Borrowed them? Somebody? We borrowed them. Oh, okay. Yeah, borrowed. We we didn't have permission, so but no. We uh, kind of like we, that neighbor's car you borrowed first. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we we grab these fire trucks and we take them back and uh, we string up the hoses and get them full of water and uh-huh. we put tarps over the hoses and poke holes in it so we could all take showers. That was the best feeling on earth because at that point, I mean, I only had two uniforms, and I wanted to save one to go home with, you know, on my mid tour, and so you, that uniform would literally stand up because uh-huh. there was so much sweat and because we'd been uh, worried about chemical stuff. So that was just kind of a, a pretty memorable uh, experience because everybody was so happy, you know, that we were able to do that. So um, pretty much the rest of the deployment, I mean, we just, you know, we did what, uh, what the Army does, mm-hmm. kick in doors and find the bad guys. Um, it takes a pretty big toll on your body. And I remember distinctly um, when we were on the edge of Baghdad, and I had a 80-pound pack on or something, and, and we're walking, and I'm sweating. It's 120 degrees, and I'm, I watch a helicopter fly over. And I was like, damn, that, that needs to be me. <laughs> and uh, with all my chain of command and all, all the, the higher-ups, they kind of knew. Gen- I, General Petraeus, uh, they all knew my background, so they kind of really pushed me to go through. To you wanted to school. be in the air and sit on the ground, you mean? Right. Yeah, well, I, I wanted both, right? right. So, But I just figured that... Uh, not to sound arrogant, I just figured my skills were used better in the air. Yeah, I, mean, I, I right, had, had a background. Pilot yeah, background. I mean, I had so much experience flying, and the type of flying that I did was right up that alley, you know, right. being a crop duster. And so, did I, they know uh, that before? I mean, that you were a pilot before? Yeah, everybody, everybody knew it. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of a, a well-known thing, and um, yeah. So we put in my packet, and I, I actually ended up leaving like a month and a half early from Iraq with, without my unit to go mm-hmm. to Warrant Officer Canada School, which was a very difficult thing for me because, you know, you go with your guys. They're, they're your brothers. These guys will step in front of a bullet for you, you know, and the they, camaraderie. They, your buddies go, Pat, where are you going? You're li- you know. uh, no, they were, you know, of course they <laughs> right. gave me shit, but um, it was just, uh, you know, they were, I think everybody was happy. Yeah. You know? But uh, it was hard for me because these, you know, I spent, I spent uh, almost a year in combat sleeping with these guys, you know, right mm-hmm. next to them and, and going out on missions and, it's just, uh, you know, you just can't, you can't explain it. Unless you've lived it, you can't explain that kind of uh, bond that you, you develop, right. especially in combat. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I get back, I go to flight school, we're an officer candidate school. I, you know, I remember growing up talking to my uncle and other people about different military schools, and they were saying, you know, this is one of the most challenging officer schools you can go to. And, and I mean, I, it was a vacation for me. I, I loved it. I had a, I had a great time. Um, I've always been kind of a neat freak anyway, so that part of it was really easy. And you go through the school, and, I mean, these guys run, but you're running with dudes that are broke already because that's normally the instructors. Right. So, right. so we uh, – and then I get into flight school, and my flight school class ended up having the salutatorian and the valedictorian from West Point mm-hmm. in my class. So 
Uh, and then I had a really good friend that was a, another, he was a previous crop duster as well. He was in the Mississippi National Guard. Just happened to be a crop duster guy? Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> so we ended up, uh, we were always jockeying for number one in the class. No. Um, him and I, and then the, you know, the two from West Point. And so it was such a competition for me, and I, I just, I don't like to lose. So, um, you know, that. Kind of like Maverick <laughs> in the movie? Uh, no, I don't and think I, I don't live in an asshole. I just, <laughs> I just uh, you know, I just was very confident in myself, and I, and I, I held myself to a very high standard, so. Um, you know, so no, I meant Tom Cruise. And yeah, I know. In, oh, okay. Him, yeah. him and his buddy were I can competing against that. you. I can recite that, that entire right, movie. Right, right, That's what I meant. <laughs> yeah, so we, you know, in, in the school, I mean, I studied really hard. So, I mean, I, I ended up being the distinguished honor grad and, and uh, was able to pick my platform. And I knew I wanted to fly OH-58Ds, um, although they were trying to sway me to go a different way. But I wanted to fly OH-58Ds because they worked... Uh, more closely than anything else with the ground guys and mm -hmm. that's and that's really what I related to with the ground guys um, so I ended up uh, just smoking that school and and getting out and then I went to a few other follow-on schools ended up in Hawaii and uh, to the 2-6 Cavalry Regiment and kind of got thrown in the fire pit there because as soon as I got there they were spooling up to deploy and uh, I went straight so, so wait a minute so you leave the ground guys you say guys I'm going to flight school and then you wanted to pick a plane that was going to cover the ground, guys, so you called your guys and said, guys, I got you covered. Don't worry about it. Right? Yeah, man, that's it. That's what <laughs> right, you want to do. Right, right. No, you know, in, when you're flying that platform, mm -hmm. uh, when you want to be able to speak their lingo, right? right. So you get, you get a brand-new pilot or a brand-new lieutenant or, or a brand-new warrant officer that, you know, really has, hadn't, doesn't know the infantry tactics or anything like that, and, mm -hmm. and the infantry commander wants him to do something. You know, it's it's very difficult and it's very frustrating. And you're already frustrated enough. There's already enough stress. And so I just figured, you know, with me being there and, and understanding how they operate, it would be uh, just you know so much easier. And right. so that's where I, that's why mm -hmm. you know. And plus, I'm an adrenaline junkie anyway, so I like being 10 feet off the ground and getting shot at. I guess. But uh, yeah. So it was just uh, we ended up deploying again uh, to Iraq. Um, kind of the same place, uh, same places, you know, flying in. Um, our base of operations was out of Kirkuk. As you say, that was the air base out of Kirkuk? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was out of Kirkuk. And so, uh, you know, the first time I was in that area, northern Baghdad, and I ended up in Mosul. And I stayed in Mosul for like seven months. Um, you know, and it really, it changed so much. Uh, our rules of engagement changed so much from my first deployment to to when I started flying, I mean, our hands were kind of tied, and that's a very, it's a very difficult um, way to operate as a as a combat soldier, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so it's very stressful. What do you mean your hands are tied? You to to uh, yeah. do certain things. You had to wait. <clears throat> yeah. So in the beginning, I mean, um, our rules of engagement were, if, you know, pretty much if you're threatened, you see a gun, you know, you're gonna you you need to take care of business. Right. And you know that's how it should be in combat. I mean. You know, we're there to do a job, and uh, but, you know, as we roll over into the peacekeeping mission, which, you know, has really never been done before, and it's just not very smart in my opinion, but um, they start saying, okay, well, you know, you, now you got to be shot at or you, before you can retaliate. Well, that doesn't make any sense, you know. I mean, I don't, I'm not going to stand there and, I mean, if you're going to go duel a guy in a draw, you know, and you're going to let him shoot first, I mean, that kind of defeats the purpose mm -hmm. of the, um, so... Uh, flying a helicopter, and plus, you know, you're, you're an officer now, and, and you're in charge of equipment and soldiers, and so there's a lot more responsibility. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's a very difficult thing going into a, into a fight thinking that 
man, you know, I hope I don't get in trouble for this. You know, if I, if I let this rocket go or if I let these 50 cal rounds go, I just, you know, I hope I'm not going to get in trouble. And so it puts, it puts the soldiers in a very difficult situation, right. you know, because yeah. they, we all want to go home too. I mean, we didn't, you know, we want to go home. That's it. I mean, we want to do our job and go home. We were asked to do a job for the country and, and we were there trying to do the best we could. Yeah, and, you know, we go through this, uh, this whole thing. I mean, you know, I got, I think I flew over 230 missions in uh, about six and a half months. Most of it was at night, uh, you know, because we, we own the night, or we used to. Um, you know, I think technology's kind of catching up around the world. Right, with that night vision stuff. How, is it clear, clear? I mean, well, you know, it's, it's clear. Um, so it's, uh, you, got, you have about a 60 degree field of view. Mm-hmm. And your visual acuity would be equivalent to 20 over 200. So legally blind, but we're flying a multi-million dollar helicopter at night shooting stuff. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, it's really beneficial. Um, it really is. And, and it's just a difficult uh, thing to learn. You know, it's a new technique. Mm-hmm. And so um, right now we're going to break for our sponsors, and uh, we'll be back with you in just a minute. Awesome. You're listening to Wounded But Not Broken with host Patrick Scroggin. We will be right back after a word from our sponsors. Attention, looking for semi drivers nationwide. GTS Transportation of Burr Ridge, Illinois is looking to hire a partner with experienced CDL holders in every state. If you are going to drive, why not drive for the best? Whether you are driving solo, as a team, or as an owner-operator, GTS is looking to add you to their rapidly growing company. Become part of one of the most respected, driver-friendly, and successful transportation companies in America, where drivers are treated as royalty. Contact us at gtscarrier.com. Again, gtscarrier.com. Or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. We would love to help you, which in turn helps everyone. GTS is an equal opportunity employer. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Radio Broadcast for over 15 years. High quality printing services and warehouse distribution have been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. VBN. Veterans Broadcast Network brings you Unbroken, hosted by Patrick Scroggin. It lies within you to conquer your greatest challenges. Patrick tackles the stories of how others faced unthinkable odds and then at a pivotal moment, a change occurred within them that gave them the strength, attitude, and direction to excel beyond the greatest expectations. Listen every week and learn how it is possible to defeat the impossible. Welcome back to Wounded But Not Broken with host Patrick Scroggin. Hey everybody, welcome back. 
uh, we were, you know, talking about Iraq and some of the missions that I've been on, uh, flying at night, and we were talking about night vision goggles. And, um, you know, another capability, the, the helicopter that I flew had, if you've ever seen it, it's got the big ball on top of it. And uh, I could laser de designate uh, for pretty much any platform on the planet from, uh, you know, miles away. How many guys in the helicopter? Two. Yeah. Two guys. It's uh, just a little scout. Is there a navigator helicopter. and then a... Pilot no, we're both pilots. You got a pilot in command, and then uh, so normally uh, that helicopter, the the guy in the left seat, the guy that's not flying, guy in the left seat's running the battle because we're we're pretty much within every battle, and and the capabilities that we have um, with the site and being able to designate stuff, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's invaluable um, for the the commander. And we're so close, and we can maneuver so well that we can uh, we can paint the picture for that ground commander of what he needs to do, how he needs to, uh, you know, set up his guys. How fast is a helicopter like that flying? Well, we flew it with the doors off all the time because it was so hot. I don't think I've ever <laughs> flown one with the doors on. So with the doors off, it was like 100, 110 was the VNE speed, so not faster than 110. Yeah. That may or may not have been broken a few times. Uh, you know, and kind of go out the window when you're getting shot at. But, um, yeah, so, you know, the, uh, the night that I went down, uh, it was – I just, you know, I woke up and I, I slept all day because I was on a big mission the night before. And I was the, actually the air mission commander the night before, so I was running the battle. And it was a pretty high-profile mission. And, and then How next, many helicopters in a battle? Uh, we work in teams, so you might have two, uh, two teams, so oh, okay. a team of two. So you always have a – they, they call them like hunter-killer teams, so you've got a, one down low, one up high. you always got somebody covering you. Mm -hmm. um, and so – uh, you know, I remember waking up and I just had a bad feeling uh, about the about what was going to go on. And I don't even I wasn't even I don't even know if I was scheduled to fly that night. I don't even remember. But I ended up going on this mission, and I was flying, uh, so I was in the right seat. And kind of, uh, you know, I came in uh, over the town. We were we were working uh, uh, northeastern Iraq, and I remember pulling up and, and turning left. Uh, I was in a really hard left bank, and all the bells and whistles started going off, and and I started falling out of the sky like a rock. Um, uh, Were you hit? You mean? It, yeah, it was. It was just uh, one thing kind of led to another, and um, you know, I just found myself. It, it your tra everything's muscle memory, so everything just kind of slowed down. Really, um, I remember dropping the collective, uh, leveling the helicopter. I'm looking out. Uh, in front of me and I what I thought were high tension wires because there was all, a bunch of high tension wires all, all around me where we were operating and we were operating below them most of the time and uh, I ended up pulling a little bit of collective to get over the high tension wires it wasn't high tension wires it was a berm in a field so but it looked you know under goggles it looked and uh, I, you know when we hit the ground um, it was just like chaos I mean it, I just the, the engine was still going and you know you're you're thinking to yourself holy shit what just happened and so now you're trying to assess everything so the, the helicopter had airbags so the airbags went off and night they slammed my night vision goggles back into my eye so my or, my left orbital was broken my my eyeball wasn't quite really in there anymore um my hand was just spewing out blood it cut off one of my fingers partially and the other two were cut half off at the ends. Uh, my arm, I knew my arm was broke and because uh, I couldn't grab anything with my left hand, but I'm, I'm basically how we crashed when we hit the ground, 
it ripped everything away from my co-pilot and, and put it back over on me. So I was in this big heap of metal uh, wires. I remember trying to get wires out of my way. And uh, so my co-pilot, you know, he was, I mean, I'm sure we were both screaming to some extent because uh, there was, I really didn't feel a lot of pain. That's the thing. I, don't, I just don't remember feeling pain. Um, I remember thinking, holy shit, this is it. You know, I knew I was messed up. I couldn't feel my legs. Uh, I ended up grabbing my left boot and uh, my calf was sticking out of the boot and I kind of tossed it to the side and, and my uh, tibia and fibula were shoved through the top of my knee because when I was running down trying to do the, the battle checks, I hit my bones with my hand. And I was thinking, oh, that isn't good. And uh, what, what do you mean your battle checks are? Just you know, like if you're in a firefight or something, you know, and you feel something, you're gonna you're gonna start patting for blood. Right, right. In this yeah. case, I'm already bloody, but I'm just trying to make sure that oh, everything's still there because I couldn't feel it. Mm -hmm. And I knew that my leg was really messed up. I couldn't see it. Um, I couldn't really get to it because it was all underneath a, a bunch of rubble. And I, but I, I did take a tourniquet and I put it around my leg the best I could. And uh, I remember laying there trying to find my M4 and it was bent, uh, it was no good. I couldn't, couldn't use it, so I had a pistol and you know, I'm, I'm getting ready for the worst. And I think at that, <coughs> excuse me, at that moment, that, that is when like my life literally flashed before my eyes because I'm thinking this is it. You know, these, they're gonna come get me and uh, you know, it, I don't, you know, I, don't, I really didn't know how to explain it. It wasn't, I wasn't scared. It was, you know, just like, I can't believe this is happening. Yeah, right? what about the other guy? Uh, JB, they, they ended up coming. I mean, that's, so the next thing would be the, the Black Hawk helicopter lands. Uh, these, the ground guys are coming, and I hear American voices, and they get him out right away, and he, he's on that first Black Hawk. And uh, I'm still laying there. I was laying there for about 30 minutes, I think, because they had to bring in the jaws of life to cut me out. And so I'm bleeding like crazy. I've got all kinds of internal injuries. Um, you know, I can't move. Uh, you know, the only thing I do is move my hands and, and my head a little bit. And, uh, you know, at this point, I'm, I'm thinking, oh, man, this is it. You know, tell my family I love them. And uh, so they ended up getting me out. And I remember I can still smell it, the, the jet fuel off the helicopter and the wind. I can, I mean, like, if I lay down and think about it, I can still feel it. They put me in the helicopter, and that's really the last thing that I remember. Uh, that's, when, that's when I died for the first time. Um, so uh, the first time I was dead for five minutes. Uh, and then, so from there I go to Kirkuk to like the little cash hospital and they tell him, they're like, man, if he's not in blood in this amount of time, you know, he ain't gonna make it. And that ended up, that flight is a little bit longer. So then pilots and the, uh, the medics that flew me to blood are who I owe my life to. I mean, them guys, they went above and beyond. They, uh, they kept me alive. But I did flatline on that flight again and uh, I get to blood, and none of this I remember. It's just all accounts of what people have told me. Uh, I had a really good friend, the guy that was um, in flight school with me, that was the other ag pilot. He was flying Apaches, and, and when he heard that I went down, they pulled him off the line because we were best friends, and he came in and sat by my bed, so he was giving my family updates. Mm -hmm. You know, I think at that time they'd already told my family that I'd died, and uh, so now my family's thinking, you know, we lost our son. How far was a 30-minute ride to when they picked you up to the hospital? Man. <coughs> in in Blackhawk, I don't know. They're much faster than we flew. It took yeah. us about 55 minutes to an hour. Oh. So, mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I, I, I know once I got to Balad, you know, that's... I wish I had pictures, uh, you know. But he, like, the way he... His name was Bubba. He's from Mississippi. Um, 
the way he <laughs> the way he described me was uh, my my head was swollen up as big as a basketball. He was like he was telling my family I don't even recognize him, you know. And, and but he knew me. He knew that. He told him he's like, listen, if he makes it through tonight, he's gonna make it, you know. And I think he was just trying to, you know, give my family some reassurance. Uh, but I ended up staying there for about two and a half or three weeks till I could make that flight to Germany, till they could stabilize me enough. Um, so as far as the surgeries there, I don't know exactly what they did. Um, now, once once I got to Germany, I made that flight to Germany. I remember waking up one time in Germany, and I was laying in this room, and I had this fixator around me with these two giant bolts in my pelvis. So that, that my injuries were, <coughs> excuse me, I had uh, nine fractured vertebrae. So from T10 down to my sacrum were all fractured. My sacrum was shattered. My spine was completely detached from my pelvis. My pelvis was broken four places. Obviously, I was, I was cut off through the knee. So I was a knee disartic, and that'll be important uh, for, in, for later. I'll tell an, another story about that. But, and then I remember looking up and I had bottle caps on my, on my fingernails. They, I don't, I, to this day, I don't know why they sewed a damn bottle cap on my fingernails, but I had two of them and I thought it was cool as hell. <laughs> um, so, and then they, I remember going back to sleep. I had really bad, oh, my spleen was cut and I had really bad uh, uh, blood clots in my lungs. So they were giving me all these breathing treatments, you know, from what I'm told. And I think I was in Germany for about three weeks before I could make the flight to Washington. And uh, I, I woke up one time on the flight to, to Washington, and I, you know, I didn't know what the hell was going on. And, and at this point, I'm on so much drugs. And I do remember talking to, this, to the, you know, the medic there, and I'm like, oh, is the, air, the airplane's going down. I need to get up and fly it. You know? I mean, my, my brain this whole time was just making up all this stuff. I was mm -hmm. having all these dreams. And uh, so we land in Washington, and I think that's when it really sunk in of how bad I was hurt. Um, when they wheeled me off the, the C-5 on a gurney on the airport, with it was lined with people for 400 yards of just waving American flags. And, you know, it was, I don't know, I think, that it, I think back now, and it's just so awe-inspiring to me of how well this country came together after yeah. September 11th, which mm -hmm. is a shame to see it right now. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we were so united, and, and I don't know, it, just, it was such a, such a warm feeling over me. I just knew everything was going to be all right. Right. And uh, they get me up into the room, and my family was already there, and my family comes in to see me for the first time, and my brothers were literally bawling. And I've I really never seen any of them cry. And uh, I, did, I couldn't figure out what, what was going on. I was like, you know, what's, I'm, I'm all right, man, what's happening? And, and my brother's like, man, you're missing your leg. And I was like, oh, I'm not. I mean, I, I thought my leg was on the ground, you know. That's, mm -hmm. I was on so much drugs. and. And I couldn't move anything because I was pretty much in a full uh, body cast from underneath my arms all the way down. And uh, so just laying there and, and hearing all these stories and, and seeing people feel sorry for me, it just it infuriated me, you know, because I chose to do this. Mm -hmm. Don't feel sorry for me, you know. I mean, I knew what I was getting myself into. I knew this could happen. Mm -hmm. um, well, that, that was my thought at, at, at that time. I'm not damn Iron Man, so, I mean, I went through a lot of struggles. but. But at that time, I was trying to lift up my family, you know, I'm, hey, I'm going to be good. You know, this is, we're going to get through this. I'm going to get through this. I'm going to overcome everything, and I'm going to be the badass I was, right? And so, but it was every day, it was this big pity party, you know. Everybody was like, yeah. wanting, wanting to do all this stuff for me. And I'm like, you know, I, let me, I'll do it myself, even though I couldn't, you know. But I just, I just didn't want to rely on anybody. 
So laying in that hospital bed in that hospital room, uh, I remember the first doctor that came in and uh, he was, uh, I guess they were testing for traumatic brain injury. Mm -hmm. He asked me, he said, do you know what day it is? And I'm like, dude, what the hell? I mean, I just woke up, I don't even know where I am, you know? I said, get out of my room. And so he goes out and labels me with this severe tra traumatic brain injury, which I, I might very well had. I mean, um, but I, uh, I ended up, it just, it just pissed me off so bad. Mm -hmm. um, all these doctors coming in and uh, just telling me, you know, you're not gonna do this, you're not gonna do that. And uh, because I was very optimistic and they were taking that out of me. And, uh, you know, we're going to break right now, and we'll be back in just a minute. Wow. Awesome. You're listening to Wounded But Not Broken with host Patrick Scroggin. Looking for semi-drivers nationwide? GTS Transportation of Burr Ridge, Illinois is looking to hire a partner with experienced CDL holders in every state. If you are going to drive, why not drive for the best? Whether you are driving solo, as a team, or as an owner-operator, GTS is looking to add you to their rapidly growing company. Become part of one of the most respected, driver-friendly, and successful transportation companies in America, where drivers are treated as royalty. Contact us at gtscarrier.com. Again, gtscarrier.com. Or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. We would love to help you, which in turn helps everyone. GTS is an equal opportunity employer. VBN. Veterans Broadcast Network brings you Unbroken, hosted by Patrick Scroggin. It lies within you to conquer your greatest challenges. Patrick tackles the stories of how others faced unthinkable odds and then at a pivotal moment, a change occurred within them that gave them the strength, attitude, and direction to excel beyond the greatest expectations. Listen every week and learn how it is possible to defeat the impossible. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Radio Broadcast for over 15 years. High quality printing services and warehouse distribution have been our hallmark since 1985. Serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Welcome back to Wounded But Not Broken with host Patrick Scroggin. All right, everybody, welcome back to Wounded But Not Broken. Uh, we were talking about uh, my initial getting to Washington, D.C. in the hospital and doctors coming in and telling me what I would and would not do. Um, I cannot tell you, if you're in the medical field, of what this does to somebody that is that hurt. Um, it is, it's very, it, it'll just de demolish somebody's will, unfortunately. Or fortunately, mine, mine can't be demolished. I'm very hard-headed, I'm very stubborn, and I'm very confident in myself, which really paid off for me. Um, but laying in that bed, uh, basic, I couldn't even sit up, you know, so I'm laying flat on my back. And I did that for about two, almost two and a half months. Um, 
but it was just such a driving force for me. I turned that negative into a positive, and that's kind of the message that I love to portray, because nothing, you're never out of the fight, no matter how bad you want something, or you, you don't think you can do it, there's always a way. And so I, I initially started with that, and I was very positive, and I was very assured of myself, and um, you know, at times that, that kind of diminished, and uh, you know, leaving, uh, one of the big big setbacks for me in Washington was I was there with all the controversy at Walter Reed when they were having all the scrutiny of, of what was going on. And somewhere along the line, the, the metal they put inside of me to hold me together wasn't the right kind of metal uh, or wasn't conducive for you going in to get an MRI. Mm -hmm. And I remember, I remember this vividly because uh, my heart almost exploded. I was so scared and, and it hurt me so bad. But they'd turn the MRI on and I'd hit the emergency stop button. And my brother was there, thankfully, <clears throat> and the, the technician kept getting mad at me. And I told him, I said, something's not right. And you know, I, granted, I'm on, I'm on enough drugs to, you know, you know, get a small village high, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm on so much pain medicine that if it's hurting me at that point, you know, it's bad. Mm -hmm. And this technician's like, no, just let it go, just let it go. And he was going to disable it or something. I don't remember. I just, I remember my brother saying that he's done. You're not doing it again. And uh, so we go back up into the room, and uh, I think the next day was the first day that I actually got to breathe fresh air. They wheeled, wheeled me out, and, uh, but at that point, my family was already saying, hey, we don't want him here anymore. We want to go to San Antonio, which was the premier place for amputees because they had the, the Center for the Intrepid that was all civilian-funded. Right. Uh, Denzel Washington and a bunch of people got together, and they... they you know, donated all this money in that multi-million dollar building, mm -hmm. state of the art, and that's where, that's where you wanted to be as an amputee. And so, uh, I remember that flight it was on a C-141 uh, landing in San Antonio, the ambulance ride. I get to the hospital, and one of my soldiers from the infantry, the medic, greeted me at the door, and he's like, holy shit, chief, what's up? And I was, you know, I wasn't in the hand slapping mood, I was hurting, <laughs> I wanted my drugs. <laughs> And uh, so anyways, we get to talking and, and um, we, you know, we're visiting and now all these doctors and nurses started running around and, and, I'm, and I knew it was for me and I, was, I didn't know what the hell was going on. So they wheeled me down the, and into the ER immediately, put me out and, uh, I f you know, for every other day for three and a half weeks I was doing a back surgery because evidently in Iraq they have their soil, they had this really bad bacteria in it, and I had both kinds, and it had gotten into my bone marrow. And so, at this point, I'm really sick, plus all this other stuff. I can't sit up. I'm pissed off at the world. This is when the, all the depression starts kicking in. This is where the positive pat kind of gets overwhelmed, right? So I'm laying in bed, and, and uh, um, the head infectious d disease doctor for the military, was he came in to actually treat me because it was so bad. And he was friends with uh, another pilot that I'd served with. So, you know, it's all about networking, I guess. Right. So, you know, I lay in there and all these different kind of treatments they were trying to do to, to get my blood cell count up. And, um, you know, I'd lay in that bed and I was on so much drugs and I couldn't sleep. You know, my mind was racing. I was laying there in a, just a depressive state thinking, why me? Why did this happen to me? Why did this have to be me? And... You know, that went on for a few days, and, and I put up this big, this big front because I didn't want people to see me, you know, depressed or to, to see me 
you know, sad or crying or whatever. So I'd wait till everybody left the room, and and that's when that's when that stuff would would happen. And and I realized uh, about I don't know about a week and a half after all the surgeries had been completed that it was when my family wheeled me out to a hall um, in the center in the BMC. There's these, it's all the whole side's front windows, and I was on the sixth floor. So they wheel me out in the hall, and I'm looking out these windows. I'm still, I still can't sit up in my bed, so I haven't set up for, you know, like two, two and a half months. And um, I remember just rolling my head over and looking at this guy, and he was burnt. And uh, he was burnt 99% of his body. His name was Merlin German, uh, worst burn survivor in history as far as I know. And he had such a great attitude. And, you know, he was trying to fist bump me. We just couldn't reach each other. And you know, we kind of visited for a little bit, and uh, it was time for me to go back in because uh, some doctors were coming in to see me. And I remember going back in that room, thinking to myself, "Damn, what are you bitching about? You know, you better, you better be bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and figure out how to get up out of this bed because it can always be worse." Mm -hmm. So that was the biggest turning point in my life to that point because I just told myself, "I'm never going to bitch did about he, anything." Did he survive? Yet. He did for about two and a half years, and he went in for a, uh, just a basic reconstruction surgery on his face and never woke up. Wow. No. Yeah, he used to wear a shirt that said, uh, less than 1% chance of living, what the hell are you going to do? Mm. You know, I mean, he didn't have a nose or ears or mm. greatest guy on earth. I mean, he's such a good guy. Um, yeah, so that was just the, it was a huge turning point for me. I think everything really started to, to come together. Um, after that, uh, you know, I, initially I could start sitting up in bed now up to like a 20 degree level, no, no further than that. Um, and then that's the first time that I got to see myself. Uh, my physical therapist had come in and he was like, you know, you gotta go through one more back surgery and this back surgery was gonna be a bitch because they had to go back in and take the, all that metal out and re-break re my pelvis and reset everything. But after that, he goes, as soon as you recover from that, we're gonna hit the ground running. And they, they strapped me to this bed and they, they stood me up. And I remember looking at myself in the mirror and I just started crying. And uh, you know, I, I was 220 pounds, 6% body fat before I got hurt. And I'm 138 pounds now. My, my leg is the same size from my hip to my ankle. Yeah. And I, I mean, I just started bawling and I passed out because I've been on my back for two months. Um, so a few days later, I go in for my, uh, that last back surgery and that was the worst pain that I would ever experienced in my life. Um, I remember telling them, just kill me, just put me to sleep. I don't, I don't, you know, my sister was in, in uh, the recovery room and she could hear me yelling, you know, all the way into the ER. Mm -hmm. I was screaming. And then I'll never to this day understand why. But they could have, while I was knocked out, they could have taken the damn x-rays then. But they waited till I woke up to take me in for x-rays to x-ray everything. And every time you moved me, it felt like you were hitting me with a sledgehammer. You know, it hurt so bad. Um, so, uh, you know, I get out of that. The next obstacle that I had to overcome was uh, the drug addiction. Because, you know, the stories that you hear, uh, you go in, hey, my ankle hurts. And they give you a whole slew of pain medicine. That's true. I mean, they'll give you whatever you want. And at that point, I was on so much pain medicine that uh, I just came, I, don't, I, I can't even fathom it now. I don't even know how I, how yeah. I could breathe. But uh, 
Me being me, I don't ever do anything half-assed, so there, I just quit a cold turkey one day. I just stopped. Uh, Dumbest thing I ever did. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I didn't sleep for like seven or eight days. Uh, a lot of TVs and shit got broke, um, you know, going through the withdrawals, all the anger. Um, so they, they went back in and they put me into a medical-induced coma. And then coming out of that, I kind of weaned myself off of it right. Um, and still to this day, I mean, it's very hard for me to take anything for pain. Even if I, my last knee surgery, they gave me the pills and I threw them in the trash. I just, I, don't, I just have this block. I don't, I don't want to depend on that stuff, you know. Mm. So, um, you know, now I'm released from the hospital. I can sit up, but I still have to wear this big, ugly brace, you know, and, and uh, it was a personal thing for me. I just, I really didn't want to, want to get in a wheelchair. I didn't want to get dependent on a wheelchair getting me around. So I, I used crutches, which they hated, because if I fell once, I'd have been paralyzed, right? Because it's a miracle that I'm not now. So I, I became Speedy Gonzalez on crutches. I mean, I went everywhere, downtown, Six Flags, everywhere. And, you know, with this big old brace on that braced my neck. And Where were you I, eating to put on weight, Manny? I ate everything. I <laughs> ate prime rib. I mean, I was a it didn't, I, I've never been much of a sweets guy, you uh -huh. know. I try to eat healthy, but if you eat enough of that, you'll put on weight. Trust me. Uh -huh. I got pretty. I got pretty fat. Mm -hmm. I really did. And uh, but you know, the crutches really helped me. It was such a mental success for me, uh, being able to you know navigate everything on crutches. And I, I mean, I could go all day. People, mm -hmm. you know, just had a hard time keeping up with me. And. Um, you know, and then it came time to, to uh, put on my first leg. And I put on my first leg, and, and I remember uh, feeling that sense of defeat again. I was just like, oh, this is what, you know, because my, my muscles were so, they didn't work because I had so much nerve damage and everything. So I, I looked like, you know, I, I don't even know what I looked like. It was terrible watching me walk. Um, but that, that determination and that uh, positive attitude and that mental fortitude that I had, uh, really got me through it because I'd go home with that leg and I would get in the mirror and I'd just walk back and forth. I'd do it. I mean, I didn't sleep much. I still don't sleep much, but I'd just walk back and forth and just concentrate on keeping my shoulders level and concentrate on trying to, to engage these muscles. And, and that, really, that really paid off until I went to go fly a helicopter. And uh, I went to go fly a helicopter for the first time and I went in and got in and my knee hit the, hit the, the dash. And uh, so I'd go back in and I said, hey, got cut higher. No. And they were like, huh, no, you, you don't want to cut it higher because you know it's like the lever arm principle. The longer it is, the easier it is going to be for your walk. And I was like, I don't give a shit. I want to cut higher. I'm going to fly. Mm -hmm. So I go back into surgery, and they cut my leg higher, so that's another month and a half of recovery before I can wear a leg. But my knees are even now. And so and that was just another personal goal. And, uh, and you know, they, they caved in, and, and I uh, got cut higher, and I, I started flying helicopters again. And, uh, but the, the funniest story, I guess, with me flying, it was, a, it was just a, a confidence builder for me. I wanted to know I could do it. I knew I could do it, but I needed to prove it, right? So I, my family owns a, a flying business, or my brother does, and so I, I left the CFI on vacation to go fly an airplane, and that's all I wanted to do. I didn't care about the vacation. I just wanted to fly the airplane. And at that point, at that point I couldn't take my leg with me because it was a liability, I guess, or something. So I distracted my therapist and my son grabbed the leg took it down the car so we stole it <laughs> and uh, so I go fly this airplane and that was and I knew right then after I landed that airplane it was a tail dragger it was a super cub and uh, 
I knew after I flew that it was all easy going from there. There was no, there was no stopping me. There was uh -huh. nothing I couldn't do. Pretty incredible, man. But um, yeah, and and you know, it's the, the, I've always said that the big things in our life arise when we need them the most. And so that transition from from the military to civilian life, uh, I, I I was already and had it in my head that I'm I'm gonna fly. I'm going back to flying. I don't care if it's medevac. I don't care if it's, you know, in Africa for a private company contract. I didn't care. I was just I just wanted to fly. I didn't care if I got paid. Honestly, I just wanted to do it. And I was walking through the CFI. I'm, pre I'm getting pretty close to getting out of the military. And the and there was an FAA representative there, and uh, my therapist said, "Hey, you'd be a great candidate for this." And it was air traffic control. And the lady said, and I was like, "Ah, I'm gonna fly." And the lady goes, "Well, yeah, he can't do it anyway." And I was like, I, I, I said, what? I can't do it. What do you mean? And she goes, well, you know, you, we're worried about traumatic brain injury and your cognitive memory and all this stuff. And I was like, shit, no, I can do it. And so I, that became my focus right then. I mean, you tell me I can't do something, I'm going to do it. Yeah. And uh, so I ended up doing all these tests and, and, uh, and ultimately getting hired for the FAA. But uh, getting, you know, that transition from military life to the civilian life was the hardest thing by far I've ever done in my life. Um, that camaraderie they have in the military. It's just not there in the civilian sector. It right. just, just it, you know? Yeah. And I get, to, I get to my first facility and I see all these people griping about, you know, having 45 minute breaks and working an hour and off for 45 minutes, you know, because air traffic control is a pretty high stress job. And, but I'm, I'm thinking, man, what are you griping about? I mean, you got a job, you know, you get paid and good money. And, you know, it, it was just, it was culture shock for me. So it took me a little bit there. Um, and I, uh, you know, going through that, I got a call. I got a call because I was always a big hunter, big outdoorsman. I got a call from Chad Hall from Sheep Shape. You know, he asked me. Uh, I'll never forget I was sitting in my office um, probably playing a game. I wasn't doing any kind of business work playing a game or something. But So I was sitting in the office and Chad calls me. And he's like, hey, man. He goes, I understand, you know, uh, I've read your story. And he goes, hey, do you think you can hunt sheep? And I'm like, hell yeah, I can hunt He goes, so you can climb a mountain. I'm like, yep. And at, at this point, I'm not in the best physical shape I've ever been in my life. I've got a keg, you know, and I'm thinking. But it was instantly, I've always wanted to hunt sheep. It's the most challenging hunt on the face of the planet. And instantly I knew I wanted to do it. And so it was, that was my new goal. And once we'd settled on it, um, Sheep Shape was an awesome show. I got to meet a lot of awesome people. Rick Carone was actually from the Chicagoland area, played, uh, played for the White Sox. He was on the show. He, re he passed away from pancreatic cancer. So he was stage four when we started the show. And, it, you know, such a great man. Uh, Chad Hall was a cancer survivor as a kid. Kelsey Buford was, uh, she went through life, you know, with a lot of uh, stories of assault and, and uh, uh, mm -hmm. you know, different things as a child. So we, we started this show and I, I started training, like I was training for the damn Olympics or something, like every day. It, it didn't matter if I was walking to the mailbox, I had a backpack on her. Right. Um, I was in the gym lifting weights, and they always kept telling me, man, you're, them weights aren't going to get you. Start working out for the mountains, though. You're going to go to the mountains. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but they gave me so much stuff because, or they gave me so much crap because I was lifting weights, right. heavy weights, and I was getting big, and they were like, yeah, that's not going to get you up the mountain. That's going to be worse. I'm like, no, I guarantee you. This is just, I, I go, it makes me feel good. I'm going to get up that mountain. And that first hunt, man, I was in heaven. I, I, uh, I ended up, we hiked for, I don't know, eight and a half, nine hours to get on this ram. I, I've, I've kind of always been renowned for long range shooting. So I, I think that first sheep, I, if I remember correctly, it was 863 yards, dropped him, 
And I'm thinking, now how the hell are we going to get to him? You know, because it, it was like a 2,000 foot straight drop down here. And then, so we ended up having to go all the way around. It took us six and a half hours, seven hours to get to him. And sheep are, you know, super regulated. And as a conservationist, you don't want to leave anything behind. So um, I had I had my cameraman and two other people with me uh, to help pack out. But I was adamant. I wanted to pack my I wanted to pack my sheep out, right? So my pack was, you know, 90, 100 pounds. And these people are looking at me like I'm crazy because we're going up and over a mountain, you know? And anyways, it took me 13 and a half hours, but I made it back to camp. And uh, it was just a personal goal. You have a video. I saw a video of that. Yep. That's yep. right. You can probably see it on our, on our website. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. There's and all, the, all the sheep hunts are videos. It's awesome. Yeah. 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 It was such a, such a, great, uh, a great time in my life. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of a way I got to get away from everything. And, right, right. And... Uh, we're going to have to save some of those stories for the next show, man. And you know what's cool about it is Patrick flew here in his own plane. How was that? Yeah. How cool is that? Yeah. Anyway. So right. I guess next week we'll continue on and I'll, I'll yeah. finish these stories up. But uh, oh, all the way up until here. There's a lot of stories. So, hey, it was great to be your wingman tonight. And uh, lots of great shows. we got a live studio audience. How about giving yourselves a hand for hanging out with us? Yeah, thank you, everybody. Patrick's inaugural show. Guys, it's going to be around the world. Check it out, you guys. Thanks, Patrick. Yeah. You're listening to Wounded But Not Broken with host Patrick Scroggin. We will be right back after a word from our sponsors. Attention, looking for semi drivers nationwide. GTS Transportation of Burr Ridge, Illinois, is looking to hire a partner with experienced CDL holders in every state. If you are going to drive, why not drive for the best? Whether you are driving solo, as a team, or as an owner-operator, GTS is looking to add you to their rapidly growing company. Become part of one of the most respected, driver-friendly, and successful transportation companies in America, where drivers are treated as royalty. Contact us at gtscarrier.com. Again, gtscarrier.com. Or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. We would love to help you, which in turn helps everyone. GTS is an equal opportunity employer. Uh.